Well, thank you everybody for coming. Can everybody hear me? Um, My talk tonight is entitled, Let It Be Done Unto Me, Living Single in the Modern World. Um, But I want to explain a little bit what I mean by the single life requires, you know, a bit of explanation. I'm not referring to the consecrated life as part of a religious community. I'm referring to the distinctly modern phenomenon of a stage in nearly every woman's life between the onset of her childbearing potentiality and her possible entrance into marriage or the consecrated state at some later point in time. And I say possible because it's no longer a given fact that every woman will find herself married or in a religious order at the end of this time period. The single life, for some, turns out to be just that. It's for life. For most of us, however, this stage might better be termed the single years. Now, I think pretty much everybody in this room right now is currently in her single years, right? Okay. So I'm glad I prepared this talk for you guys. Um, You are not formally consecrated to a particular man, nor to Christ, through a particular vow. Your status is is single and secular. You are in the world. And for the great majority of you, be prepared, this status will not change immediately upon graduation from Christmas. (laughs) It may continue for a few, or, or perhaps more than a few years. There are millions like you. And yet, when it comes to specific spiritual guidance addressed to those living in this unique status, many single women feel invisible. It is as if this time in a woman's life is dismissed as a kind of waiting period or an anteroom preceding her life's true beginning. And yet, in the modern world, this single status comprises much more of a woman's life than in any other age. The cultural delay of marriage has been caused by some good and some not-so-good factors. On the one hand, institutionalized traditions of courtship have been virtually abolished, except maybe in India and places like that. Um, Women have found entrance into the universities and into professional life. Medicine has enabled us to live longer, you know, so there's all sorts of factors why women get married a lot later. The point is that these single years for a woman are simply a fact of existence, whether you like it or not. Okay? For whatever reason, God is allowing you to experience this time period. Our task this evening and beyond is to learn how to view and spend these years in the light of eternity. Can the single life be viewed as a kind of vocation? Are there distinctly feminine professions I ought to be thinking about? Do I have specific opportunities while I am single? Do I have specific responsibilities while I am single? Would God want me to remain single? These are important questions for how we live the years in our immediate and perhaps extended future. The answer to these questions, however difficult, all require an examination of the idea of vocation. Now, there is a good reason that the single life, as I've been speaking of it, has not traditionally been considered a vocation. For one, it's not necessarily a permanent state. Okay? It possesses no irrevocable commitment, right? And those two things kind of have to be there for it to be a vocation. 
And yet, when we view the single years apart from the idea of vocation, we run into a serious problem. The modern view of the single years is that they are a state of suspended animation, a window where a woman is free from all commitment, free to enjoy herself, free in a sense to extend her adolescence, but at last without reference to any pesky parental involvement. Such a view seems to reduce a vocation to the particular duties of the nun or the mother. Anybody not committed to one of these two ways of life is somehow exempt from their attendant demands. One problem here is a failure to grasp what the word vocation means in its broadest sense. A vocation, a calling, is precisely that, a call from God for us to do something in particular. Your vocation is God's plan for your existence. Fulfilling this plan is the very reason he made you. And I wanted to read a quote from Federico Suarez. Has anybody seen this book? It's called Mary of Nazareth. I highly recommend it as a kind of vocation discerning spiritual reading. He says, no one has been born by chance and no one was consulted before being brought into the world. The essence and existence of each person is something of extraordinary value. Everything has a reason for being and existing, and each creature has been appropriately gifted for the end which it is to fulfill in the universe. It is God himself who has provided and arranged carefully a great number of small occurrences throughout our lives, which will help to lead us with our own cooperation to our designated goal. End of quote. So in a general sense, there is nobody who is born without a vocation. To suggest that there is, is to accuse God of leaving souls to chance. Suarez continues, What elevates a man and truly gives him a personality of his own is a consciousness of his own concrete task in the universe. So, as Christians, we're already miles ahead of everybody else in this consciousness. Because we all share, number one, in the common vocation of baptism. When we sacramentally entered into the mystical body of Christ... We each took on the general task of pouring out our life for others, fulfilling our existence through self-gift. Okay, this is the universal Christian vocation to love. The call to love will be at the foundation of anything we discuss here tonight. Because the question is not, is a single woman called to pour herself out for others? It is simply a question of how. And in what specific ways does the single woman accomplish this task? We approach this question by considering her distinguishing features. First, I want to talk about her femininity, and two, her single status. Okay, for those of you here tonight who are in my class, I talk a lot about femininity. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing, I promise, but I just want to make a few points about uh, the, the essence of femininity. <clears throat> I'm going to quote from the now St. Teresa Benedict of the Cross, who is also the philosopher queen, uh, Edith Stein. Edith Stein looks to the very origin of womanhood. Where do we see the origin of womanhood? The book of Genesis, right, where we see woman created. Okay. Edith Stein looks to Genesis for insight on this question. There, woman came into existence as a companion to man and as the gateway for new life to enter mankind. As Stein puts it, a woman exists for union and for fruitfulness. 
from the core of her being, a woman has a desire, one, to give and receive love, and two, she has the need to nurture. These two elements define what it means to be feminine in any state of life, be it marriage, consecrated virginity, or even this single state that I'm talking about tonight. The gifts with which God endows a woman for physical motherhood penetrate to her very soul and enable her to be a mother in whichever vocation she is called. As a matter of fact, it is spiritual maternity and not physical maternity, which is the universal feminine vocation. A woman by nature is person-oriented. Okay, she is geared toward connecting with persons. As Stein says, she is inclined to understand and foster organic development, that special individual destiny of every living being. So whether they're her own offspring or not, a woman has a natural concern for the right development of the beings which surround her. We are drawn instinctively, not only to babies, but even to kittens and puppies, anything small and helpless. And somehow we're inspired to create, as she puts it, an ambiance of order and beauty conducive to their development. Women tend to be nurturers, but they're called not only to nurture bodies, but souls. And while this concern includes our own children, it's not limited to our own children. The Christian woman is one who longs to go out to souls and to effect their transformation through love. In the same manner as her physical womb, the Christian woman is meant to be, quote, a shelter in which other souls may unfold. Okay, so Edith Stein makes this connection between a physical womb, which is a space where a new person unfolds, and the soul of a woman, which is meant to help other souls to unfold and develop. This dynamic is at the heart of what is meant by spiritual motherhood. John Paul II affirmed this in his Mulieris Dignitatem, on the dignity and vocation of women. He wrote, motherhood involves a special communion with the mystery of life as it develops in the woman's womb. This unique contact with the new human being developing within her gives rise to an attitude toward human beings not only toward her own child, but every human being, which profoundly marks the woman's personality. It is commonly thought that women are more capable than men of paying attention to another person. The moral and spiritual strength of a woman is joined to her awareness that God entrusts the human being to her in a special way. End of quote. It is precisely motherhood of a spiritual kind that concerns the single woman. She is, in the majority of cases, preparing for a future that includes physical motherhood. The time spent in her single years is not in any way a mere waiting period for, much less a free period from, the responsibilities of motherhood. These years, these single years, are a direct preparation for her future, and they demand that she practice her maternal powers in ways presently available to her she must begin to view those in her social and professional worlds as spiritual children. When she does this, she begins to live her Christian feminine vocation in every moment, rather than waiting for her life to begin at some unknown future time. 
So one might ask specifically, number one, what does this imply about the kind of work a single woman ought to do? Am I suggesting that there are distinctly feminine professions? Well, yes and no. I read an article recently by a radical feminist which was lamenting the continued entrance of women into the non-glamorous fields of teaching, nursing, and non-for-profit charity work. The author seemed astonished that women would continue to enter into these traditionally female professions when so many other and often more profitable fields were open to them. And yet, I ask, why all the astonishment? These traditional professions are intimately linked to the feminine outlook. They are directly concerned with the flourishing of persons. They require the feminine preference for the concrete over the abstract. Okay, this tends to be the case that women prefer the concrete over the abstract because people are concrete, right? People are multifaceted creatures to which we pay attention, right? You can't just abstract and pay attention to part of a person, right? You're paying attention to many fa factors and features at once. That's why women are such good multitaskers, okay? So women tend to connect more deeply with persons because they have a gift. And Edith Stein says that this gift is a heightened emotional sense, okay? Women have emotions that help them tune into people a little bit better than men tend to, okay? There are exceptions, but I'm generalizing right now. Such professions, you know, teaching, nursing, non-for-profit charity work, these professions are clearly compatible with those feminine inclinations. And it is essential that Christian women remain involved in these fields because they are threatened by a culture that continually values efficiency and usefulness over concern for human welfare. But what about other fields? Do not the gifts of some women suit them to enter into more typically masculine professions? Absolutely. But here's the catch. A woman, in order to be fulfilled in whatever profession she chooses, cannot check her femininity at the door. Our dearly departed Holy Father John Paul II was keenly aware that our modern successes in science and technology have brought great material benefit for some. But he also observed that such progress has led to a profound loss of sensitivity toward the human person. What he called the genius of woman is a woman's unique ability to pay attention to other persons, to help remind those around her that man is not made for work, but work is for man. While a man might be better equipped than a woman to conquer the world, it is a woman's role to humanize that world. She can help keep a balance in the workplace by referring all of the efforts, all of the work, however abstract and disconnected from people it might seem, to a concrete living reality. She can help foster a human atmosphere through attention to personal details. And by keeping the perspective on serving people, and not simply the bottom line. Remember that woman came into existence as a, a helpmate, a companion to man, to help him to be what God wanted him to be. Like it or not, women, because of their nature, are capable of being outstanding assistants in the professional world. Standing by the side of another, sharing, helping, promoting, participating, understanding, stimulating, a woman is uniquely capable of making another person's concern her own and to work for its growth. 
we were laughing about this in class. How many times when you have a crush on a boy do you suddenly become interested in the things that he likes because you like him? <laughs> and we do this, but guys don't tend to do that as much in reverse because it's, it's frankly harder for them to, to get interested in something that doesn't naturally draw them in. A woman can preserve her womanliness when she readily offers those gifts to those with whom she works. Does this mean that a woman can't be a leader? No, of course not. But a truly feminine leader does so through a humble offering of the best that God has given her, not through an imitation of the worst faults of men. You know, sometimes people think that they're being masculine when actually they're just imitating a jerky man, right? We are imitating the worst faults of men. You know, fine, imitate a really noble guy. That's not a problem, (laughs) okay? I have had the privilege of working for several amazing female bosses over the years, and when I try to reflect and see what sort of linked them all together, I would say that each of them in their own way exhibited a feminine warmth and a genuine interest in my personal well-being that frankly inspired me to want to do a good good job for them. They weren't tyrants demanding that I do it, but somehow they, they inspired me because they were interested in me personally, and that was what made them good leaders. The presence of concerned Christian women in the workplace can be an antidote to some of the evils of objectification and greed which plague our capitalist culture. All of these things that I've been mentioning require intense spiritual stamina because spiritually mothering others rarely has, as Edith Stein puts it, the added benefit of natural affection. I mean, let's face it. With my own kids, no matter how naughty they might be and how much they're demanding of me and my patients, it's easy to love them. They're my own kids. You know, they're my flesh and blood. They're cute, right? (laughs) But... You know, those other people that we don't have a natural bond with, it's going to be harder, right? Um, How do we maintain our concern for the spiritual growth of persons without losing it, okay, without getting derailed? Well, in our work to promote the spiritual life of others, it is helpful to reflect on the nature of the spiritual life itself. What we, you know, when we use the term spiritual life, we're talking about our baptismal vocation, okay? What is it? Well, it's the task of bringing Christ himself to birth within our souls, right? We want him to live in us, okay? But just as in a pregnancy, it is an other life distinct from our own that we carry in our wombs, okay? It is Christ's life, not our own, that we are fostering in our souls and in the souls of those who we care about. Christ's conception in us or in others is a radical gift beyond our own power to bring about. All we can do is be good receivers. We can nourish and we can sustain that gift. And we allow the Holy Spirit to bring it to fruition. Okay, so the feminine desire to foster Christ's life in souls beyond her own must proceed in this very light. A woman does not approach others as a longed-for savior. Okay, she doesn't waltz in and save the day. Rather, she approaches as a mere instrument of that savior, as a handmaid of the Lord, as one who is sent. Edith Stein writes that a woman 
should stand in wholesome awe before others' souls and realize the presence of God in them. Spiritual writer Elizabeth Lesur, and I brought this book because it's also wonderful spiritual reading. Elizabeth Lesur, has anybody heard of her? Um, there is a cause for her canonization. She lived at the turn of the century in France, suffered many illnesses, was not able to have kids, uh, married to a radical anti-Catholic who was always trying to, always mocking and trying to destroy her faith. Well, she wrote, she kept a diary, which this is, amazing spiritual reading, but he found her diary after she died at 47, read it, had a deep conversion, and became a priest. So it's really, it's really neat. So if that happened, you know, it's worth reading. Anyway, she has beautiful insights, and it's, just, it's wonderful. So I brought this because I'm recommending it, too. Um, but Elizabeth Lesur said she encourages us to, quote, have a delicate respect for souls, to approach them gently. We must never repulse a soul that seeks to approach our own soul. Perhaps that soul, consciously or unconsciously, is in quest of the unknown God and has sensed in us something that revealed his presence. Perhaps it thirsts for truth and feels that we live by this sovereign truth. End of quote. So we must reach out to others in response to the Holy Spirit, not in response to our own emotional need to be needed. A woman needs to conquer herself so that Christ can be seen through her. For she has the power to bring Christ visibly to those who refuse to know him through the spoken word. She needs to practice the details of personal charm and attractiveness which draw other souls to her. A woman knows that a person does not win hearts by force, or even less so with abstract arguments. And let's face it, some of us love to preach. Christ wins us by wooing us. Okay, he works not through detachment and through arguments, but through attachment, okay, through love. A woman needs to create a space for others to find shelter in her. For by definition, a womb is a space. But this space cannot be occupied by the self if it is to accommodate someone else. And so it is that by virtue of being a Christian woman, we have many gifts and responsibilities. But what seems to be emerging here is that the single Christian woman is called to be a special kind of instrument. And this is so by virtue of her unique availability. Okay, The single woman's lack of a permanent commitment to marriage or to a religious order grants her a large degree of freedom. She is free from the specific responsibilities of the nun or of the mother. But true freedom, as our Holy Father has often reminded us, is never simply a freedom from. It is always a freedom for. A freedom from whatever binds us so that we may fulfill that destiny for which we were made. What sets the single woman apart is that she has an incredible amount of flexibility at her disposal. The modern temptation is for the single woman to view all of her time and flexibility as her own. Okay, being single means sleeping out on the weekends, working out constantly, spending money lavishly on oneself, you know, wardrobe, hair, entertainment, you know, whatever, just everything being my own. I don't have any ties right now, this is all my own. But this idea kind of implies that a woman's single years are somehow outside of her vocation. But 
as we have been considering already as a Christian and as a woman, she is already immersed in living out a particular call. These unfettered years are simply a time to live that same call in different ways. A single woman's time is not simply her own. It is God's, and he will expect her to answer for it. She is called to live her single years generously. Instead of describing her as free, it might be better to describe the single Christian woman as available. What is she available for? Caring for persons, as I have mentioned. But does this mean that every single woman, every, not every, every single woman, ought to pursue those long-term careers that I mentioned earlier? What about the large numbers of single women who want to get married but don't have a current prospect? Are the single years simply an anxious waiting game? where she feels apprehensive about entering onto a path she might abandon, investing time and money and training she might not use? No. Her availability has been given to her as a gift, and she's still called to put it to good use. One option for single women is that they are available to serve the church. They have the luxury of being able to accept many of the low-paying jobs which serve the church, either directly through teaching or administration, or indirectly through the multitude of nonprofit charitable organizations. A single woman like anybody has to pay her rent and eat, but she can live simply with her family or with other women in that situation. She is free in a sense that most men are not, it gets complicated, to pursue jobs which may not have that upward mobility that men who hope to support families must seek. The single woman is free to travel. Experiencing the world is an excellent way of broadening one's capacity for understanding and sympathy. She may do this through missionary work. We've had a lot of students do missionary work. Shallon did it in Africa. We've got students going to the Dominican Republic, working with the poor there. We also have missionaries who go out to the academic world through FOCUS. Um, is everybody familiar with FOCUS? Okay, is Marie here? She did FOCUS. Um, Anyway, so that's kind of another twist on it. You're, you're working on college campuses, but, but you're traveling, and you are, you're definitely um, experiencing the world in a different way. Political work. We've had speakers over the years from the World Youth Alliance. They work at the UN and, um, you know, all sorts of sort of adventures, but with a purpose, okay? Um, travel for further education, which I'll talk about in a minute, or travel for leisure, okay? But by leisure... Well, let me put it this way. All leisure must be in the context of something that develops us personally. You can't just stagnate. The whole point of the single years is not to stagnate. It's to continue to grow and move toward your fulfillment. I recall speaking with somebody years ago when we, we were both single, and she had just been to Greece. And I foolishly and probably very nerdily asked her about various museums and sites of classical significance that I had seen when I was a student. And she just sort of stared at me and re replied blankly about several islands she had been to. And she informed me of the status of the club and bar scene on those islands. So I realized that, you know, this is not exactly the kind of travel that makes you a deeper, more interesting, or interested person. You know, not that there's anything wrong with going to a club, but um, the idea that these things should be meaningful. Okay. Believe it or not, opportunities for leisurely travel are much rarer when a woman begins her family or is committed to a religious order. Third, the single woman is free to pursue her education. Now, 
She may think she knows all she needs to know, or is all that she needs to be. But God may have different plans for her. Now this issue can be sticky, particularly if one longs to be married. Education is expensive, and debt is a real responsibility. To pursue a pricey graduate degree simply because one didn't know what else to do is probably not the most prudent thing to do. But if a woman has intellectual gifts and feels a certain inclination toward this pursuit, she should not ignore it. At the very least, she must allow this possibility to enter into her prayer life for consideration. We here present understand that education is not first about marketability. It is about the formation of the mind. It is about developing the person, and it may well lead us right into our vocation. The single woman, though not caring for her own flock, is available nonetheless to give of herself directly to young people. She can volunteer in tutoring and mentoring programs. She can teach catechism. She can assist friends and family with their own children. The day and age of the extended family helping a mother with her children is sadly gone. Your gift of time and energy to assist those with young families is priceless. I think that one way in which our society works against the family is by isolating and wearing out mothers, and you can help them. Each of these different ways of spending our single years develops our personalities. They may well prepare us for marriage, they may actually lead us to meet our spouse, or they may open our horizons to the possibility of choosing the consecrated life. But more importantly, if we respond to the opportunities God places in our path to exercise spiritual motherhood, our identity changes. Okay, We really do become a different person. I can't tell you how many times people will look back and think, wow, I was really a different person then. Okay, So these experiences are meant by God to transform us toward being the person we are meant to be. And this seems to be the fullest meaning of the word vocation. But how do I know what God wants of me? This question will always surface when speaking about vocation. Women especially, because we have the tendency to romanticize the opposite sex. Now, as I talked about with my students, this is actually a good thing. It comes from our ability to see the potential in our children, right? If we're made to have and raise children, we need to be able to see their potential and help bring it out. So we can sort of see the good and see the future in people. But sometimes this goes to an extreme, and we see things in guys that aren't there, right? We can sometimes have a romantic fantasy and fall in love with the fantasy and not the real person. Okay, And women, because of this tendency, sometimes have a difficult time discerning their own particular vocation. Is this what God wants, or is this what I alone want? Because we cannot initiate relationships in the way that a man can, the single woman often feels a sense of helplessness. You know, I feel inclined to marriage, I'm willing to make the sacrifices it entails, why doesn't God send me a husband? <laughs> All of these uncertainties can be extremely frustrating. What we need to keep in mind, however, is that even these frustrations can be part of God's plan for us. But we need to supernaturalize them. We need to offer up our occasional sadness or loneliness or just plain confusion for the intentions of others or for the intention of fulfilling our vocation. We also need an objective element to counterbalance these very highly subjective dreams and plans that sometimes enter, enter into our brains. 
prayer, the Holy Eucharist, and regular spiritual direction will ensure that we don't become enamored with persons or projects that are outside of God's plan for us. Does this mean that we will never meet the man of our dreams? No. But sometimes we simply need more time, more experience, more suffering, and more grace to discover exactly who that person is. Women, and and this goes for men too, often become so fixated on a particular type of dream spouse that they overlook the incredible gifts that God has placed in their path. I can't tell you the number of friends and acquaintances that I have who, though they were initially heartbroken by the end of a relationship, later felt that they were saved from marrying the wrong person. Some people simply discover their spouse or their vocation to the consecrated life sooner than others. That's great. But for the rest of us, we need to embrace and spend generously the time in between. So before I end, I have to ask the question, could God be asking anybody to remain single, to have our secular professional work be our primary avenue of self-care? For the majority of people, no. But for a chosen few, this may be the case. If we understand vocation in its narrowest sense of the two states in life, married or consecrated. We might fear that a life spent single and secular is that of a person who somehow missed her call. But if we view this possibility in light of one's already established baptismal and feminine vocations, right? Baptismally, we're called called to give our life for others. Feminine, right? We're called to spiritual maternity. We see that one's individual path may, in fact, lead her to such a state. It might be by choice. A woman might discover a profession whose responsibilities demand that she sacrifice the joys of marriage and family. On the other hand, it might be that somebody remained open to marriage, perhaps greatly hoped for it, but never received a fitting offer. Either way, it's going to be the consciousness of her her vocation, one, to self-gift, and two, to spiritual motherhood, that will prevent her from feeling bitter or that she missed out or that her womanhood was somehow wasted. And it is clear that the presence of such generous feminine souls in the secular world today is of incredible value. A woman's vocation is her part in creation. It is an infinite honor that God has given us such parts to play in the first place. The true tragedy is when a woman's secret hopes is not when a woman's secret hopes go unfulfilled. The true tragedy is when she fails to accept that task, whatever it is, that her very creator and redeemer has asked her to perform. Our Lady discovered her vocation at the Annunciation. And Suarez describes in his book, God, by his own choice and without consulting her, decided her part in creation. And from the moment in which Our Lady discovered her destiny, her life was one of complete illumination. There was never any monotony in her life because every life becomes a great and passionate adventure when God takes possession of a soul, and when a soul is willing to cooperate with God, accepting and fulfilling completely and without reserve whatever part the Creator has designated for it in the universe. So whenever you enter fully into each day and live each moment doing what God wants of you, and now that's easy because everybody knows what they're supposed to do right now. You're supposed to be a student, right? It's clear, so there should be peace. You are doing your primary part in creation for the present. And then when that happens, when you accept that, you will radiate peace, not anxiety and desperation. And you will be able to say with Mary, 
Let it be done unto me according to thy word.